Amen. I think one of the unfortunate things about masks this Sunday is I don't know that Josh got to see how big everyone was smiling when you were up there. That was fantastic. Thank you, Josh. Actually, yes, I think that's nicely done. Thank you for helping us in worship. All right, let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll jump into our text this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. Father, we, we recognize it as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Um, Father, as we, as we look at the amazing truth that you delight in us, help us in turn to delight in you and in your word. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but it is your word that stands forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to ask a question. I want you to think for a moment. What do you delight in? When you hear that word, what what sort of images are evoked? The season is one intended to be filled with delights of every sort. When the weather outside is frightful, as it it has been for Southern Californians, uh, we light fires that are are so delightful. We, We gather together, we give and exchange gifts, largely with the intention of giving and receiving delight. And this is a gift. It's a, it's a joy for us. But delight isn't meant to be limited to holidays like Christmas. There is joy to be found in all sorts of experiences throughout the year. Uh, this American Life uh, did an episode in the middle of the pandemic on the topic of delight right, in a time when we are not really thinking much about delight. And uh, one of the producers of the show interviewed her mother, um, the producer's name was Mickey Meek, and her mother is Noriko. And Noriko describes her life, she's in her 70s, describes her life as delightful. And uh, her daughter, Mickey, asked her, like, why? Like, what's so delightful about your life? And she goes on to give this list of things in which she finds delight, including eating discounted donuts for breakfast. Apparently, she keeps her freezer stocked with them. Uh, going to a ballet class for seniors. Uh, reading biographies in her bed for two hours every night, Uh, going to the movies by herself at 8.30 in the morning, and not surprisingly having the entire theater to herself, being out in nature. Those are all things that, that bring her delight. And I think we also find tremendous delight in relationships. God is a relational God. He's made us in his image, and so we were made to know him and to be in relationship with one another. And so if you've got good relationships with friends or siblings, parents, uh, your spouse, your kids, those are all sources of delight. Uh, My kids are still young enough to to be excited when my wife and I come home from someplace. And uh, often when I come home, my daughter, who's just under two, uh, this is the best thing in the world. She, she'll like run up to me and say, Dada, happy to see you. And it's like, yes, like that is, that is truly delightful. Now, while it is, is good for us to consider the things that, that bring us delight, temporal things, relational things, I mean, ultimately our delight is meant to be found in God. He has made us for himself and, and our truest source of joy, happiness, peace, comfort, delight come from being in right relationship with him. 
But on the flip side, one of the things that we see in this text is that God also delights in us. This passage affirms unflinchingly that our God, the God of the universe, delights in you. While that is surprising to many of us, it is what God has said in his word. This is what we see in verse 4. And the Lord delights in you. Now, as you know, at this point uh, in our uh, church, we've been walking through a series looking at prophetic texts that point to the coming Savior. And we got to celebrate the culmination of that on Christmas Eve. But we're going to go back to the prophets today just to hear the goodness of our coming Savior and the joy in which God had in sending him. Now, one of the things that we've seen throughout the prophetic literature is, is the prophets acting as sort of prosecuting eternity, attorneys on behalf of God. God, in his love, reached out in relationship to the people of Israel and entered into something akin to a marriage contract, what the Bible calls a covenant with them. Now, the relationship between God and his people was rooted in love, but... There were terms, right? There, were, there was an agreement. God was going to behave in a certain way, and, and the people were meant to behave in response to him, both promising faithfulness. Now, while God maintained his faithfulness to the covenant, his people went astray in just about every way imaginable. So again, the prophets acting like prosecuting attorneys point out how the contract, the covenant, has been shattered. But though that's the case, and it can't remain unaddressed, God longs for restoration. God longs to be reunited with his people. Why? What our passage tells us. Because he delights in them. Our God delights in you. So we're going to walk through this passage together and explore that amazing reality. And we're going to start by looking at the, at the joy of the Messiah. And we see that in verses 10 and 11 of Isaiah 61. So let me read those verses for you. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. These verses close a a powerful section in the voice of the Messiah, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 61. There the coming Messiah proclaims that he has come to bring about the long-anticipated salvation of his people. He will bring good news to the poor. He will bind up the brokenhearted. He will set the captives free and comfort those who mourn. This is the beautiful, liberating work that he will bring about. And these are the words that Jesus himself uses to inaugurate his public ministry. We read about that in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. 
And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It was fulfilled in him. And what's the scripture that's being talked about? It is this. It's Isaiah 61. Jesus is looking ahead to the liberating work that he is going to do, first in his public ministry, but ultimately in his death and resurrection. Though we may live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, most people, even here, live as though they are captives. We're not in literal chains, but our bondage is real. Bondage to what, you might ask? Well, bondage to sin first. Sin has a tendency to make us addicts, where we keep going back to the things that we know will destroy us. But additionally, we are in bondage to a need for justification, a need for approval that always seems to be just beyond our grasp. I was reading something recently about our, our culture's obsession with pruning and preening uh, our online personas. And I talked about one particular influencer who had a practice of taking 1,200 selfies per day just so that she could get ones that she felt were like Instagram worthy. But this piece pointed out how, how this person is simply one extreme example of how most people approach their online personas. And if you're someone who doesn't care about or even have an online persona, you're, you're not freed from this. Right? Long before Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, whatever is coming next, long before any of those things, human beings found innumerable ways to present themselves as more put together than they actually are. And as a culture, we've been spending billions of dollars on makeup, weight loss programs, self-help programs, and what ultimately amount to being religious means of finding our best life now. And we have been doing it for a long time. Social media didn't create this problem. It simply streamlined a feedback loop for these efforts. The author Mike Cosper writes, We are anxious people covering our flaws, shaping our image, straining to present an acceptable version of ourselves to the world around us. And of course, all of this is merely symptomatic of a deeper issue. We don't just want to appear pretty or skinny or smart. We want to be good, acceptable, lovable. We want to know that we're approved. But in a world drained of transcendence, there's only the approval of the mob to fill the void. That need for approval can and often does feel like bondage. But Jesus has freed us from that. How? Grace. He is honest about our condition. We are desperately lost. No amount of curation is going to change that. 
We cannot save George. We cannot save ourselves. But he comes to us clothed with the garments of salvation and covered with the robe of righteousness. He lived up to the terms of the covenant perfectly. And he was willing to take the punishment that we deserve for breaking it. He rightly earned the approval that we all long for. And we see that proclaimed over him by his father in his baptism, where God says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And though we haven't earned that approval on our own, though we deserve condemnation, in his grace, Jesus shares that approval with us. He covers us with his robe of righteousness. As Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that is good and true and beautiful. How does Jesus feel about that reality? How does Jesus feel about the work that he came to do on our behalf? Friends, our text today tells us that he was ecstatic about it. Look again at verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Jesus rejoices at the work that he has done for us. He's not, an, he's not the annoyed older sibling come to bail out his younger sibling once again. No, he clothes himself with the garments of salvation as a bridegroom decks himself or a bride adorns herself. One of my favorite things that I get to do as a pastor is officiate weddings. And one of the reasons that that's a favorite of mine is because I don't know of many days more joyful in a person's life than their wedding day. And it's a day, too, when bride and groom, both of them, put more effort and thought into their appearance than ever before. There's teams of people that are, that are called upon to make sure that people are looking their best. Why? Well, a cynical person might say Instagram. Um, but I think that the, the, the practice of adorning oneself for their wedding, uh, it long predates social media. Now, the real reason is excitement and joy, anticipation, love for the person that they are about to be united to. To this day, my very favorite picture of Katie is a picture of her uh, putting on her wedding dress for the very first time is when she, uh, she went and found it. And she looks beautiful, and she's just beaming. She had no idea what she was in for. I had successfully tricked her up to that point. <laughs> but the joy captured in that moment, right, we're told by Isaiah, is a picture of the joy that Jesus had as he put on the garments of salvation as he put on the robe of righteousness so that we might be united to our God. That, friends, is the joy of the Messiah. 
You are the joy of the Messiah. And as the prophet sees this vision, he is filled with zeal. And we see that zeal coming through. The voice switches from that of the Messiah to that of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 62. And look at what he says. He says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The prophet, upon hearing this message, cannot keep silent. Why? For the sake of the people of God, he has to share this message. He's just filled, we're told again, with with zeal because of this amazing truth. So why does he want to go and proclaim it? Well, well, one, it's, it's true and good, and it's good to say true things, but he gives us another reason. He is convinced that the truth of the love of God will inevitably spark something within the people of God that will in turn make them righteous, a crown of beauty, a light to the nations. That's the power of the love of God. It's able to create new realities within us. I was listening to a story somewhat recently um, about this guy who is super into birding, which I learned from, um, from this podcast is what insiders uh, call bird watching. So bird watchers call bird watching birding. Bird watchers call themselves birders. All right, now that we've defined our terms, let's carry on. Um, now this guy who was being interviewed, his name was Noah Stryker, and he's a birder with an amazing knowledge of birds, and he's turned that into a career for himself. And in this interview, he was asked what got him into, what, what got him passionate about birding. And he said that it happened when he was in high school. Um, he was watching a documentary uh, from David Attenborough, who you might know as the voice of the Planet Earth series. It's fantastic. Um, but apparently he has like a, a body too and, and does things. And I only know him as a disembodied voice. Anyway, uh, this was a, a, a documentary about birds, and, and he had this encounter with a turkey vulture. And so uh, David Attenborough got within, uh, within sight of this turkey vulture by luring it close to him with a piece of raw meat. And this young man at the time, Noah, was fascinated by this bird. And apparently his, his immediate thought was, I have to try this at home. Just fantastic. Um, so he did. Um, but he decided to go big. So Attenborough lured one turkey vulture with a piece of meat. He's like, what would happen if I got a whole carcass? So he lived in rural Oregon, and um, deer carcasses apparently in this particular part of the country are not hard to come by. So within, sh- within a relatively short amount of time, he found one. He loaded it up into his family's uh, Volvo sedan. And... Uh, carried the carcass into a clearing in the woods near his home. Um, and apparently when all of this was said and done, it was, it was late. He didn't know what was going to happen. So he goes to bed, not knowing if it was going to work. And when he woke up the next morning, apparently turkey vultures were everywhere. 
They were around the carcass. They were in the trees. They were on the roof of his house. Apparently, there were about 30 to 40 turkey vultures. And he was so happy. <laughs> and he said something, um, and then he said something that, that I thought was, was just so interesting. He said that the turkey vultures were his, quote, spark bird. Now, Noah explains, this is him talking, turkey vultures are what I would call my spark bird. For a birder, a spark bird is the one you see, usually in some kind of unexpected situation, that grabs you in a way that you haven't been grabbed before by birds and turns you onto a wavelength that you haven't been turned onto before in the bird world. He continues, you ask just about any birder out there and what their spark bird is, and they'll probably have an answer for you. For me, that week watching these vultures, being in their world just gripped me. It changed my life. All right, so why am I talking about turkey vultures? Well, let me tell you. Experiences like this have the power to shape us, to change the trajectory of our lives. And if an experience with a bird can do this, how much more can an experience of the love of the God of the universe and so Isaiah, when he, when he hears this message of the love of God, he cannot keep silent about it. He adorns himself, our Messiah does, with the garments of salvation, with the same excitement that a bride or a groom has in getting ready for their wedding day. Knowing that truth sparks change. It has the power, we're told, in these verses to stir within us a righteousness that will be a light to the nations. How are you made righteous? By knowing that God loves you. The love of God changes us. And God's love is far more powerful. It's a far more powerful change agent than what we typically resort to. And what do we typically resort to? We typically resort to fear and pride. Again, in this text, love is the motivator, not fear, which would sound something like, you know, be righteous so that God doesn't smite you or so that you're not left out of the kingdom. That would be an, that would be an appeal to fear. Nor is the motivation pride, which, is, which would sound something like honor God so that you might receive a place of glory or so that God will smile when he thinks of you and all of your good work. Fear and pride can be effective motivators, at least for a time, and they tend to be our default, but they are seriously lacking. Why? Because while fear and pride can motivate us to do good things, at least for a time, they are the same motivations for most of the terrible things that we do. Think about it this way. Fear and pride can be used to, tell a, to, to get us to tell the truth. And here's how this works. You know, we'll start with fear. Someone might come to a person in which they're trying to, to curb their behavior and say, tell the truth because if you get caught in a lie, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out really terribly for you. It's true, right? It's an appeal to fear, isn't it? Now, pride. And appeal to pride might sound something like this. 
tell the truth because you want to be seen as a person that remains true to their word. Or put negatively, tell the truth because you don't want to be like those people who lie. Those are true things, right? Appeal to, those are both appeals to fear and pride. And they can be effective means of curbing behavior, at least for a time. But again, they're seriously lacking as primary motivators because <laughs> what typically causes us to lie? Fear. Right? We lie because we're afraid of the consequences of the truth. Or pride. Right? We're afraid of how people are going to see, see us if they find out the truth. So they can, motive, they can curb behavior for a time, but it only takes you so far. So in this text, God doesn't address that as the thing that's going to elicit change, the thing that's going to bring about righteousness, the thing that's going to make us a light to the nations. No, what's going to do that? Love. Love. The love of God will create within us a new reality. A love that is made all the more explicit in the next verses. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Our God's love and the good things that flow from it, from it are not dependent on us. God does not have a list that he is checking twice to see if we've been naughty or nice and then decide, okay, this person's going to receive love and this person, no. That's not how it works. Grace comes first. He gives us this lavish display of mercy. He, 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 he just showers his goodness on us and his love on us. He tells us, I delight in you. I rejoice over you. And that reality experienced over and over again. As we tell ourselves the gospel story, as we remind ourselves, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, not when we got our act together. Or, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friends, God invites us into a relationship of love. And in that relationship, right, being in proximity to the God of righteousness, we are molded and shaped into the people that God calls us to be. We are about to enter into a new calendar year. Resolutions are going to be made. Some of them will, maybe will be kept. But God's love is not contingent on any one of them. The message that you need to take into this and every year is this. The Lord delights in you. I don't know what any of us are going to face in 2022, but I am confident that you will be able to withstand whatever this year has to throw, in, throw at you if you can remind yourself of this reality. Because of Jesus, 
because of his work on your behalf that he was glad to do. This is true. The Lord delights in you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that reality this morning. This truth that we haven't earned, that we don't deserve, and yet remains true, that you delight in us. Father, we pray that we wouldn't run from that truth, that we'd be able to hear it, and that the Spirit would would allow it to penetrate deep within our hearts. And Father, we pray that that truth would mold us and shape us into the people that you want us to be. Father, we pray that we would grow in our relationship with you and that closeness to you would make us would make us righteous, would make us a light to the nations. Father, help us to take on the family characteristics. Help us to display that earth-shattering love that we see in Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen.